Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca. I'm Jared Kimber. This episode of Red Inca is about England's golden generation of ODI cricketers with a man who just wrote a book about it. Hi, I'm Tim Whitmore. I'm a co-author of White Hot. We talk about how so many of England's white ball hitters were born pretty much in the same year, how they grew up on T20, the Bunbury Festival, under-19s, Joe Root's big conversation, private schools, athleticism, pro 40, and how two threes are not actually the same as they sit. Oh, you, you didn't do the subtitle. So I've, do, I've also done podcasts with Roller and he goes all the way through the subtitle. So, uh, you, I didn't think you'd hear that, but you, you can have it if you want. No, no. White hot. That does, yeah, yeah. Tim Wigmore is white hot. That's all you need to know, everyone. Uh, take me through why 1989 to 1991 is important for England modern white ball cricket. So you have an incredible amount of talent born in these, these, these two these couple of years, you have Joss Butler, Johnny Besto, Jason Roy, Alex Hales, Joe Root, and Ben Stokes. And you also have guys who probably would have been real stars in any other era. You have James Vince, Sam Billings, and James Taylor. Was, was Moen Ali born in that era too, or is he just a little bit out of it? He's eight, he's 87, I think, okay. and David Milan's 87 as well. Um, and Morgan, Morgan, I think, is 86. So they're like a half-generation older. Yeah. And so uh, you compare it to, in your book, White Hot, uh, whatever the subtitle of that book is, uh, to the Silicon Valley Golden Generation. Uh, can you explain that? Yeah, so basically the Silicon Valley Golden Generation, um, as sort of uh, Malcolm Gladwell and others know, is you have a lot of guys who are all born in the mid-1950s, uh, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and so on. They're all, and, you know, um, they're all born in 1955 alone, those guys. So you have, yeah, and they all, they all become adults and get to university in 1975 which is basically when personal computers are starting so they're like the perfect time because if there were any any older they'd already got got other jobs they wouldn't be able to benefit from this and if they were any younger they'd have a generation who were above them who were already doing that so there, there was a kind of a sweet spot of being born and it seems to be the same for England in in white ball cricket because basically if you're any older than a born in, in 89, you don't really grow up with T20 in quite the, the, the same way because even though it launches in 03, it takes a few years for it to kind of mature and, and develop and really it's arguably the IPL in 08 that really that really really elevates it. And of course, if you're any any younger, you've already got guys above you who've grown up as the first generation of T20. So that that is part of it. And of course, we have the, the Pro 40, which I know is one of your obsessions, Jared. 
We'll get to the Pro 40. Don't worry about that. Uh, we, you know, eventually we'll probably do an entire chat with myself just on the on the Pro 40. Um, uh, so the first T20 generation. But before we get to the T20 for a moment, the other interesting thing is the Bunbury Festival, which I don't think a lot of people outside of English cricket would know anything about. Yes. So the the, Bun- the Bunbury Festival, uh, you have this. Um, this annual festival normally involving kind of four underage teams, under 15 teams, uh, which uh, is in, in Bunbury with, with David English, uh, who was the kind of driving force who who actually passed away a couple, a couple of years ago. And I think it was nine members of the 2015 World Cup squad had come, come through the, the Bunbury Festival. And so who, real... was, who was David English? Uh, so da- David English... Um, he used to be uh, president of RSO Records, so he signed the Bee Gees and Eric Clapton. Um, and he's yeah, so he's a, he's a he's a cricket nut, and he he basically thinks that we need a way to develop to develop kids from between <laughs> being at school and a kind of a pathway between there and kind of professional cricket and under nineteen cricket. Um, so he organises this sort of you know four or five day festival, um, and it's basically where all the young players all, all start to play together, and and they, they meet they meet each other, and there's this the Perry Perry Sauce incident in 2006, where Ben Stokes puts Perry Perry Sauce in Sam Billings's in his Coca Cola and brings to go to the toilet, um, yeah, and uh, he tells us he ended up being sick in the toilet at Sam Billings. So yeah, the, the Perry Perry Wars of 2006, um, but they're the, the sort of start for the golden generation. And and so that that generation, you know, and a lot of players obviously came through that Bunbury Festival, but that generation, because they're all of the same age, it was obviously abnormally strong um, at that point. And the same thing sort of happens at under nineteen level as well, doesn't it? Um, so the same thing happens under nineteen level as well. Yeah. So that bum that Bunbury group, they all end up kind of at under nineteen level. And again, England has a very strong under nineteen um, system because of all these guys being the same age. Yeah, that's right. Although the the kind of interesting thing is England under 19 cricket, they're never very successful actually. They obviously win the World Cup in, in 98, but that's this kind of weird one off. And English players tend to develop a little bit later. So they, they don't actually have that much success in the under 19 World Cup or there's little moments. There's a, a century that Stokes scores against India, which is seen as a, a big moment. And actually, weirdly, one of the big, the biggest moments of the 19 cricket for this generation is nothing that happens on the pitch. It's this debrief that Joe Root has in 2010. So after, after the under 19 World Cup in 2010, um, the coach is Mark Mark Robinson, and he has a debrief with all the players, and he basically tells Joe Root that you know you're much too limited. You're never going to make it. Probably not going to make it even for Yorkshire white ball cricket unless you you really transform your game. And then you kind of you kind of look at it, and you're like, hey, maybe this is rubbish. But actually, so under 19 record for England, Root plays uh, 16 ODIs, averages 30, a strike rate of 56, which is England in the 1990s kind of vibe. So maybe you know what Mark Robinson said. There was, there was something in it, and we talked to to Root, and he and he talks about how he was obviously very very angry, and he thought it was a very kind of destructive thing to say to a, a young player, which you can see that. But actually, it was also the the catalyst for him to develop his, his game. So you know, Root's never going to be the most powerful guy. But of that kind of group of nine, he was the one who was kind of most naturally suited to red ball rather than, than white ball. But he develops his basically his scooping, his reverse scooping. Those are big. Basically, he develops. He becomes very, very destructive against spin, and he becomes basically a master of manoeuvring the ball in, into gaps. And actually, we see that that Root is a king of what you can call the, the, the cruising speed, which is he's able to score at a strike rate of 90-95 in the middle overs, 
um, races without really taking risks. So he has this very, very high average, um, especially in the World Cup cycle from 15 to 19. So he he actually, yeah, he has this 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 chat and he's and he's behind and it's it helps to to kind of to kick to kick him into gear and then you go and then actually he talks about again you have the competition so the fact that everyone else is so destructive and actually you know so Joss Butler whenever he talks to people he's the one that stands more than anyone else um, so you think of there's kind of it's inevitable that he'll go on but actually it's not quite that simple because another guy everyone talks about is Jordan Clark so Jordan Clark is seen as almost as good as Butler by a lot of people and he's gone on to have a good counter career but he's never really been been close to England so it doesn't always mean yeah it's not risking the stars quite like that but actually I think the, the, the level of competition just drive people forward and actually these are the first guys that they don't really look down on, on white ball cricket and so yeah we talked with Sam Billings and he said actually as a kid for Kent the first thing he'd look at was basically you know the, the T20 games at the Oval and, and Laws for Kent in the Blast. And they were the, the big ticket events because actually, you know, there's going to be a huge crowd. It's going to be a really an exciting occasion. Um, and that that's a bit of a, a difference as well. So this group has slightly different priorities as well. And and, and actually, yeah, you, you don't have a generation who is all about test cricket. You, they're actually, they're, they're these, 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 these broader ambitions. And actually the odd thing is it takes the England hierarchy and management a while to kind of catch up with where the players actually are at. Well, the, the whole thing about, you know, the England players being, thinking about white ball cricket, it reminded me of, you know, when Australia win 99, 2003 and 2007, you know, I interviewed Ricky Ponting uh, a few years ago and I, I, my first, one of my first questions to him was, why did you take it so serious? No one else was taking it serious. And he said that he grew up watching it on TV and he didn't realize when he was young that the players weren't taking one day cricket seriously. They, they were out there, they had their, you know, canary yellows on it that, you know, Dean Jones is running down the wicket and flicking England into the stands and all this sort of stuff. And in his mind, it was supposed to be taken seriously. And it does feel like there's, and you, the West Indians in T20 crickets, another really good um, example of this is sometimes if you have a whole generation of players for whatever reason who just go, oh, this is our thing, you actually have this incredible advantage over the rest of the world where the rest of the world's like, wow, T20, yeah, we'll make a bit of money off it, but we don't take it seriously. Whereas Dwayne Bravo and Kyron Pollard are out there working like, you know, micro strategies out of, you know, how to get the most out of each ball. And it does feel like reading this generation of English cricket, even if it didn't show in the senior team for ages, you know, Josh Butler clearly thought about batting in a way that other players didn't. And again, with all due respect, uh, respect to, you know, Virat Kohli, Steve Smith and Kane Williamson, I'm not sure any of them would have completely remodeled their game based on an under-19 coach, um, you know, coming to them and telling, like, th there's a there was a lot of interesting things that sort of all come together. And obviously Mark Robinson becomes a very well-respected coach. He won the women's world cup uh, as, as well. Yeah. So he's a proper coach's coach, but even so I'm not saying that Steve Smith didn't have a great coach and, and, you know, Kane Williamson and Verrett Collins, they all had different mentors that helped them. I'm not sure any of them would have sat down a, you know, 19 year old phenom and just said, you're not good enough. You may not even play domestic cricket. You're, you're a complete waste. There's a lot of different things that sort of come together in that one moment. But I do think the seriousness of which Joe Root takes white ball cricket um, specifically is quite interesting. And then the fact that people like Josh Butler and Ben Stokes and these other guys were all thinking about it differently already. Yeah, that's one thing we haven't talked about is, is money and finances and financial incentives. And actually, because the, the county, the T20 Blast from about at this point, 
in the early you know early 2010s has 16 games in the group stage it's really really bloated and then you have knockouts afterwards so you're playing up to 19 games a season so that's a lot of games um, so a lot, lot of practice, plus counties, they make a lot of money from, from the blast. It basically keeps them afloat. So actually, it's a really big part of their thinking. And probably keep talking about Australia more so than, than in Australia, because the big batch at this point is a very is a small competition in terms of the number of games. I suppose you're, you're almost a pretty big batch, but you know what I mean? In yeah. terms of the, the state batch is, is a very small. So actually, the because the T20 blast is so successful so early, English cricket does a classic thing of scheduling probably far too many matches. <laughs> which is a negative in many ways, but it's also a positive in some ways. So there's a big financial incentive. And then, of course, you have the IPL as, as well. So actually, you have a situation that... So before the 2015 World Cup, this generation is sort of 23, 24. So there's already signs there. And actually, some people are arguing for them to be picked a lot earlier, but England are very reluctant. So you have this weird situation with Alex Hales. He's number one ranked T20 batsman in, in the world. And England are just... English don't pick him for years. And when they do, they pick him out of position at number three. There's this interview with Graham Swan in 2014, August 2014, I think, when he basically says, we have a generation who will win us a World Cup, which is the generation of, well, Morgan, he references, of course, but also he talks about Hales, uh, Roy, Vince and Butler, um, all of which who will do win a World Cup four years later. So actually, in 2015... I don't think they were ever going to win it because the generation were, were too young. But there's definitely well England in 2015. They have the perfect approach from two years out, and then maybe they get to the semi-finals and they play really and they play in the, the right way. And it's actually seen as a perfect development before what happens four, four years later. Instead, it's perfect in a different way because it's so bad that it's it's the, the ground zero and you rip up everything. But England, remember, England had this alliance tour to South Africa in January 2015, so just a month before their World Cup disaster class. They scored 370 twice. Ben Stokes scored you know 150. There's some thrilling, thrilling cricket. And this is a team who's ready to go, really. And it, it takes the World Cup disaster for them to actually be unleashed. So actually, but this is interesting because we talk about the World Cup as being the catalyst. And that's, that is true in many ways. But it couldn't be a catalyst if this, there weren't a generation already there. Otherwise, you think it would still take five years after that. So the fact is, this generation have already been reared. They are ready to go. You just need then the, the leadership to actually embrace them, which finally that does happen. But the, the point is, they already have a group of players who are perfectly suited to playing in, in this way. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Yeah, so I had Matt on talking about something else from from your book the uh, the other day, and, and we talked a little bit about the Australia A situation. I think it was the Pakistan games we were talking about, where you know England's third eleven beat Pakistan, right, and a very good, yeah. strong Pakistan. Yeah. yeah, and you you look at that Australia A team in um, uh, what was it, nineteen ninety four, nineteen ninety five? Yeah, that that summer. Yeah. So they had Greg Blewett, Matt Hayden, Damian Martin, Michael Bevan, uh, Justin Langer, Ricky Ponting. The bowling, bowling wasn't as good, although they did have, um, I think they had Paul Rifle and uh, Merv Hughes. So uh, Paul Rifle was certainly going to be one, but Merv Hughes was, you know, trying to fight his way back into the team, right? But you look at that batting lineup and it's essentially the batting lineup that uh, sort of changes the way that Australia play cricket, right? You know, uh, you know, Bevan becomes, you know, this uber specialist. Ponting becomes probably the best ODI player in the world for a little period of time. Uh, you know, Hayden becomes Hayden. Uh, you know, you also have Damien Martin. Like, it's a really, really, uh, it's clear that there was a generation there as well, right? And yet 
Australia was in a different situation. But again, you do see these situations where the it's almost like the national selectors are in both situations were holding on to older, more experienced, better Red Bull players rather than just letting go with this other generation of players. And, you know, for those who don't know, you know, Australia A almost beat the major team without really a bowling attack, right? Like it was a very, very... England, famous there. We have that, I mean, you know. Um, but, But the point being that there was... We have seen this again, you know, that there have been times when teams have just not worked out that there is a whole generation of players coming through because it doesn't fit the way they currently think about the sport, right? And I think that's what was happening there. The other thing, you talked about money, uh, private schools, right? A lot of these players come from a private school background, right? Yeah, so seven of the group of nine um, go to private schools at, at some point. You just say at some point because a lot of them do get, get scholarships. Joe is 15 by the time he goes. So you also have this debate in England about in that situation, do the private schools, do, do they make the players or are they actually kind of taking the players when they're almost fully made and using them as a marketing tool? It's, it's a combination of, of both, but I don't think it's irrelevant they go to private schools. And actually, the players we talk to, they talk about actually what do they get from these schools? Well, obviously, the facilities. Remember, for, with batting, if you're batting on a good wicket, yeah. that really suits what you get in, in white ball cricket. You, know, you can hit through the line of the ball and everything. You obviously, for your kind of physical athleticism and physical development, it's a huge thing. And a lot of these guys, they play a lot of other sports and are very good at those other sports. So this is, you know, we talked with England youth coaches and they would say this was sort of very athletic, unusually athletic group by English standards. And that was true all the way through. So they have this kind of physical robustness, um, this most development skills. So that, that's a real striking feature. And these a lot of these, this group, they become exceptional as, as fielders in, in, in the deep. And obviously, you know, um, certainly you have several wicket keepers who are also very good fielders when they field in, in the deep as well. So that, that's a really striking, striking part of it. And I think that does speak to the kind of slightly un-English tendency of, of this group. So you have a whole new generation. And of course, they then come... And then they, they basically, if you make your debut between, you know, 09 and 2013 in county cricket, that's the time when you have you know, these 16 blast matches, a huge number, and you have Pro pro 40, which I think is eight group games at, at the time. And so that's 24 games a season. So again, those incentives. And of course, it's all shorter than 50 overs. And I think the other kind of fundamental thing, you think of English English 50 over cricket in, in a nutshell of failing is, as you said, they, they play like it's a Red Bull game. And so by playing 40 and 20 overs, that's a kind of artificial way of, of correcting against that. So you, you don't have guys who are worried about batting the overs. You actually have, which England, basically England generally been pretty good at batting the overs, not very good at scoring fast enough with the kind of absolute classic case. So the World Cup quarterfinal against Sri Lanka in 2011, when they score two, three, nine for eight, and they're already happy and they get staffed blues by, by, by 10 wickets. This new generation, the whole, the whole point is they're reared to play in a different way. And, and the strike rate. I know you've written about this, but the um, the strike rates of these guys in Pro 40 is, is unbelievable. You know, you have a Butler with a strike rate of 129, and I think you have, you have three other guys' strike rate of, of over 100. And they're scoring, they're scoring, have a good average as, as well. So they're not yeah. just, you know. I think my, yeah. my memory of the Pro 40 was, and I, I know I sent you the piece, so you probably remember it better than I do, but I haven't read it in a while. But my, my memory of the Pro 40 stats was that every one of those players had a strong average and a strong strike rate year that st- on its own should have been enough to get them picked for England. Like, you know, th- th- there was every one of them had a, like a year where they averaged like 40 plus at a strike rate, well over a hundred. And it did, you know, a- and then you, I, the exception of Joe Root. 
Yeah. yeah, exactly. Joe Root's the only one that sort of does it in that period, which of course he's still developing as a player, but all the rest of those guys, even guys like Dowd Milan had really strong pro yeah. 40 years at time. And it goes back to the comment you made before about the cruising speed, right? The, the power stuff, I don't think England did the power stuff better than the West Indies did, right? And, uh, you know, from that point of view, England have been incredible. They might go on to still be a better power team than West Indies have ever been. But the thing that no one could catch up to England, and it's exactly the same now you could, in, in test cricket, in baseball as well, is that ability to score at, you know, near enough to run a ball without losing any wickets at all and putting so much pressure on the opposition. And that is, when I came over to the UK in 2008, when I watched Pro 40 games, that was the thing I had never seen before, right? It didn't exist in, in one-day cricket in Australia. One-day cricket in Australia, you know, I'm talking list A cricket here, but teams would take that time off and, you know, you would look at even the great Sri Lankan team that was famous for being exciting, they would take those middle overs off, whereas England domestic players were just putting so much pressure on everyone in those middle overs. And it has to be... and. and I mean, it's impossible not to say this, but it has to be the fact that you took 10 overs out of that game and it was a 40-over game on top of the combination of T20 cricket coming through. And it's those two things happening at the same time that just completely changed the way that England players were trained compared to everyone else in the world. Yeah, and maybe the third thing is that there's middle overs in the Pro 40. You only had four men out as well. Yeah. Again, that's replicating what becomes ODI cricket from 2015 onwards. So it's a perfect storm. We talked to Matthew Mott, who's obviously now the England coach. He was um, the Morgan coach from 2011 to 13. And he said he did see some big differences compared to Australia. And he said, basically, you didn't have that second and third gear in the middle overs. Something, something was happening. There was more, you know, more adventurous kind of style. And yeah, players were, were very, very smart. They really, you can score six, seven over in the middle overs without taking too many risks. You're going to get, you should be able to get boundary every two or three overs. And there's lots of singles and twos. And again, actually, if you look at the group of nine as a whole, um, they're very fast runs between the wickets as well, which is which is really mm. important. Again, not the most English thing. You, you said all... this before. But you kind of you, you mentioned it, but you do talk about it a bit more in the book, the athleticism side of things. So if you do look at the great uh, white ball teams, but even the great test teams, you know, Australia, West Indies, and um, uh, South Africa, very athletic teams right? Very consistently athletic teams. Like you look at those players, you look at players like you know, Andrew Simons and Herschel Gibbs and you know Clive Lloyd all the way through. And you had these incredible athletes um, who, who, who would play cricket. Maybe De Villiers. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many of them from the West Indies, Australia and South Africa. It's, it's phenomenal how many that you see come through that system. And you look at England cricketers and even when, even when you have someone like Botham, who is an incredible athlete by what? Four years into his career, he's, a lot of his athleticism is is gone. Well, didn't Mike Gatting, wasn't Mike Gatting a good football player when he was young as well? You know, there was a lot of guys who had other skills, other athleticism, and something about English cricket just completely ruined the athleticism that any of these guys had, and they end up not being like that, right? They end up being really highly specialised cricket skill people and not athletic. And if you look at this whole modern period of English cricket, it does feel like something has changed, right? And and you can go, Jimmy Anderson's another big part of this, right? But even someone like Moe Nelly, you know, this sort of natural live kind of athlete didn't exist beforehand in English cricket. So there had to have been a movement towards that. So how much of that was just they had a bunch of athletes and then they copied that? Or how much was they really realized that they were falling behind when it comes to athleticism? Yeah, so 
it, there's a bit of there's a bit of luck, a bit of kind of perfect storm, but there's something else. So in terms of the, the money is actually an important part of this story. So with, with Jason Roy, for example, he was offered academy deals age 17 um, in rugby by Wasps and Harlequins. And we'll, we'll never know, but it's fair to say that had there not been more money in English cricket by this point, someone like him might have been lost mm-hmm. lost to cricket. And that's, so again, you, I know this is a very Australian thing to be worried about the relative appeal of cricket for multi-sport guys, but I think cricket does become more, through T20, it becomes more attractive. And it's also, it's just a really fun game to play for these guys, which which kind of suits them if you're you're good at other sports. So I think that the, the money is, is, is part of it. Um, I think... There's a, there's a cohort effect as well where they, they drive each other on. And it does seem to be a kind of era where there are more sports scholarships offered. It, it's almost the peak of the arms race in between private schools for sporting talent. So that's just a kind of luck in terms of when they come through. So you have guys, again, they probably would have, they probably would have been good at cricket. You know, Joe Root's not, he's, he's probably, the degree to, he's probably not made a great cricketer by going to, to, to workshop by getting a scholarship but I think going to workshop makes him a better athlete and, and it gives him those those other sports skills which is important and we talked about the fitness running between the wickets the fielding so in that sense yeah it's not a coincidence and that the fact that these schools are kind of competing they're often competing for these specific players that is that is really important um, and so it all kind of comes together and the fact is because of of cricket becoming more attractive, which is larger because of T- T20, actually these guys, they pursue cricket, different generation, who knows, they might not, when there was less money in the game and it probably suited their personalities less, they might not have done, you know, Sam Binning told us that it wasn't just the kind of money of T20, but also it, it suits the personalities of the the whole group of nine he talked about. He suits them, suits them down to the ground, that kind of adrenaline rush, um, that sense of being the, the stars and the crowd and everything. It, you know, it suits their personalities probably more than, Playing in the Kansas Championship in April and May. Yeah, playing playing on a wet Wednesday in Northampton. Right. Um, uh, there's, it's worth noting just how bad it was because you know there's a whole generation who are now used to England being good for the last eight years, right? And so if you're if you're 18 now and you're following this podcast, you, people don't actually understand how bad One Day Cricket was. And obviously, the the best book is. Um, what's it called um 28 days data yeah yeah which really takes you through how bad it was the prequel, the prequel to Abbott, yeah basically. exactly yeah. um and uh one of the great lines that, that you quoted in this book which i'd forgotten was andrew strauss who said uh, that two threes are as good as a six which is such a mathematical head fuck when you when you listen to it you're just like wait, wait what um uh, but it's not, not true because it's, it uses twice. That's as what I mean. Balls. From a mathematical yeah. point of view, you straight away, well, how could that be the case? Um, but also, and, and I, I, I forgot to Google this. So I, I think I'm right. Ben Stokes doesn't play in the 2015 World Cup, does he? Exactly. He doesn't. He's busy playing in South Africa, smashing 150 for the England Lions, which again shows the guys were there. They just weren't being picked. England picked Ravi Bapara ahead of him in the squad. They then don't pick Bapara and they have the famous thing where James Hayes doing pretty well as a number three and then they they move him down to number six and they had so they have gary balance joe rue and james taylor all on the same team so you basically have have three anchors mm-hmm. and then going forward only have one of those guys so it, it does show you just how far and how quickly everything changed but we know the trevor baylor side of things and the owen morgan side of things and the andrew strauss side of things the other thing that i found interesting from your piece is just how much the players did take control i know morgan was one of them but it wasn't just morgan it was that whole movement of that that sort of golden generation that you talk about they actually start to have a very very big say in you know the way that they play the way that they prepare and also the way they 
look for other talented players um, who are coming through. There's no doubt that because they were coming into a broken system and they played with, in, in, a, in a certain way and Owen Morgan was given this license and Trevor Bayless freed up a lot of them and Andrew Strauss was backing them. But the players themselves were not just pawns. They were very much part of the movement uh, that changed English cricket. So in that last tour of South Africa in 2015, the players, uh, this incredible tour, so England score, yeah, 376 for nine and 378 for six. And the players basically all say, this is the way we want to, we have to, to, to keep on playing. So the players know where the future is. Interestingly, Andy Flower is coach on this Lions tour. And it seems to be, from all accounts that we talked to, a very different Andy Plow, Andy Flower to what we associate with with the England, the kind of flower boy years. The, actually, the angry flower, the the, the yeah. disciplinarian flower. It's very much now Andy Flower wants them to go and explore themselves. He's actually very good at Andy Flower and Graham Fulper on that tour, and they're, they're very good at actually encouraging the players to go and explore their their their, their, cap- their capabilities. So that's important. So. It's a slightly new style of coaching, which benefits the, these players as well. There is that that ownership. Um, England, you could say the England management is a, a little bit of credit. So what? So one of the things is interesting. Yeah, the England Lions, their number of uh, one-day matches doubles between 05 and 09, and then 2010 and, and 14. So actually, you have again what you have in a lot of international football teams who are very, very successful. You have a generation who grew up together, used to winning together. Um, and, then, and then they all kind of obviously come to the national team team at the same time. So actually, and that probably makes the, the style side of things easier for England, uh, the full team, because you have, everyone knows how everyone else plays and you have that kind of level of trust already. Because remember Owen Morgan, uh, you know, he's generally the oldest player in, in that in that team. And it's a very, very young team after 2015. Um so he's kind of the only adult in the room and it's, it's a really young team and they're very much encouraged to just keep on playing as they have done for, for, the, for the Lions. Um, so everything kind of comes comes together in a, yeah, in a kind of, yeah, in, in, in such a perfect way that it's a, it's a combination of just kind of sheer, sheer, sheer luck and happenstance and the sort of panning lo, lower down. But I think that the point is that these players do exist before England just shacking them and no one to liberate them. But when 2015 happens, they realise that they need to change the style of play and because of all these factors. And really, this is a story that is, it's it's not really an England planning story. It's more a series of factors in get lucky because of the way th- way things are. It's not, as I don't really, it's not really an England master plan, but England are able to benefit from a system, this kind of happy, happy coincidence, if you like, that these these players do all exist and suddenly they're ready to, to play in this, this whole different way. So England really from rubble find themselves with a gone gone generation and actually there's a lot of players in this generation we talked about vince james taylor obviously gets to retire early and sam billings it's fair to say that in probably any other england era these guys would not just be regulars they'd probably be captaining the white ball cricket at at a certain point as well um so that's that's the kind of amount of depth so again you talked about that australia a example you know and actually a fact we had that covid series against pakistan shows that England A effectively have got to a, a similar point, and that speaks to, yeah, just the sheer depth of the the kind of cultural change in in English cricket, and you've seen the whole image just completely just 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 trans transformed overnight. So we no longer think of England as being a Mister Two Threes so as good as a Six. Here, here's my last question. I think I might have asked this to Roller as well because you keep talking about a golden generation. The problem with golden generations is that when they finish. They do. Right. And this yeah. is, a ve- you talked about it being a young team in 2015. It's not a young team anymore. And we've had a lot of England fans over the last couple of years say, what happens next? And, you know, there is a, there's already a sense of, 
the younger players are maybe not quite as good as England thought they were going to be and that they haven't forced out the older players in a way that perhaps England might have hoped by this point. And you don't look at England, you know, um, you know, occasionally you now you'll get a player who'll come out and they'll have a good couple of years of the blast. Everyone will get really excited about them. Then they go and play franchise cricket. And actually they don't dominate franchise cricket. They quite often come back to the pack and struggle a little bit. Um, it doesn't feel to me like there is a second generation that will come through. That What we will have, of course, is they'll have all the advantages of thinking better about the game, of, of having a very good uh, style of play, of having all the a lot of the same advantages you talk about, playing a lot of T20 cricket. Like if you're a young England player now, you can play in the 100 and you can play in, in the blast, right? So, you, you know, you, there's still a lot of advantages out there. But it doesn't look like the next generation is anywhere near what this generation is right at the moment. So one of the things with Golden Generations, as you said, is because they play for so long together, one of the reasons why Golden Generations is so good because they play international sport and they're exposed at a young age. By definition, if you have one Golden Generation, it makes it hard for the next one. And if you look at England's openers now, actually, you could say England's four best um, best white ball openers, um, Alex Hales, who's just retired, Jason Roy, Johnny Bairstow, David Milan, and, and, and Joss Butler in, in T20 cricket, they're all age 32 or, or over. So that's that's showing that there's a bit of a bit of a clog there. But then you do look at guys as you know, Will, Will Jacks, for example, who might not even be in the World Cup squad. Yeah, he's a really, really talented player. He's, he's done well in leagues around the world. I think there was 70 English players played in franchise cricket last, last winter. So I think, no, there are reasons to, to be optimistic, but I don't think, you know, we say in the book that to be as successful as England have been, yeah, England have really been the best team in both ODIs and T20s, I'd argue, since 2015 yeah. as a whole, yeah, which is definitely. an incredible, incredible achievement. So that's probably not going to be sustainable forever as as Australia, you know, they're gone, you know, their brilliant era, um, as that showed. Um, I think in, England will never, I think I'm confident England will never go back to being what they were before 2015, which is this sort of rabble who would get to the quarterfinals and sometimes not, not even that, as we know. England have got to a place now where to get to the last four of the World Cup will always be regarded as as par, really. No, no, no more. So for now, that's where England are at, which is a brilliant achievement. Whether they can um, keep keep this going with a, with a new group of players is is the question. But it is worth saying that only six members of the World Cup 2019 squad were there in Australia last year in the Monty 20 World Cup. So it's actually there has been an element of of natural churn churn as well. So it has been more than just a, a brilliant kind of small small group of players. Um, there is still these the broader facts are still in England's favours one of which again is, is luck which is that their schedule allows them to play a full first class season and then a series of leagues around around, mm. around the world if you're an Australian young Australian you can't actually play as many leagues as a young English player without um, sacrificing your first class career so actually those sorts of advantages remain with England England are Obviously, they're a rich cricket board, which is, is, is very useful, very important. Um, and they weren't making the, the most of, of that of that before. So, yeah, I'm confident England will remain at a pretty, at a good a good level going, going forward. But, yeah, clearly when you have so many very good players in, in their 30s, they do kind of leave that generation, that kind of mid-20s generation who just wouldn't have had as much experience as these guys had equivalently, you know, eight, eight, eight years ago. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't think England will... England, no one's going to keep being at this level forever, but England, I don't think they're going going back to pre twenty fifteen. I think England's still going to basically be a very good, very competitive team going forward, and that is the legacy of this golden generation that is going to go far beyond their own careers. Thanks for coming on the podcast. 
Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are many other extras as well, including a Discord channel. There's a link to those in the show notes. Please review, subscribe, and tell all your friends about our show. Word of mouth is the best way of making our podcast grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. But we also have hosts and co-hosts like Barat Sundaresan and Bayram Kazi. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston. Each episode is produced by Ishit Kuberka at Sound Potion Studio. The team from 42 help us out with the video side. Orijoti, Saina Paye, and Maida Akam, both producing podcasts, while Mukunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube content. Sports Social Podcast Network.